Hello and welcome to the Real Film Podcast with me, Corey. And me, Phil. Hello. <laughs> Today we are talking about films uh, adapted from plays. So just be a bit more specific because that covers That's a lot of ground. <laughs> There's quite, quite a few. few. Yeah, we're not uh, including musicals. Uh, I feel like that's a discussion in and of itself. Um, and we're also, as we learnt from our esteemed guest, there is a whole world of, you know, uh, plays based on film, based on books. It's a very confusing thing. So we, we're going for films directly uh, from plays. So, um, yes, we do have an esteemed guest. He is... Uh, <laughs> he has... Quite the CV, actually. That's pretty impressed when you sent it over. Um, director, assistant director, all across the country. Uh, Leicester Curve, Ben Nottingham, Wolverhampton, Edinburgh. Honestly, it's uh, it's pretty stacked. And uh, <laughs> also esteemed host of uh, the Lockdown Arts podcast, Missing an Audience, Mr. Jake Leonard. Welcome. Thank you very much. <laughs> you feel a bit do you feel a bit funny about all that uh that opening? No, I think you up a little bit too much <laughs> it's very it's very sweet of you thank you <laughs> before we start um phil there is something you need to know about jake i don't want it to tarnish your opinion at all but jake doesn't like la la land oh okay well get him off this podcast <laughs> right now no i'm kidding everyone I can have their opinions it. Yeah. yeah, I thought I thought I'd get out of the way because I just know, you know, I thought, you know, just it's a bit. Of if a, it comes up, yeah, dodgy I, opinion, but well, yeah, La La Land is now going to become a stage show. Well, I guess you so, won't be watching it then. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to watch yeah. it 17 times just to spite you, Jake. Well, I, I just I'm looking forward to a stage musical with two good songs in it. Oh, wow, <laughs> wow. brutal. Right. Um, so yes, films uh, adapted from plays. So Jake. You are obviously the uh, play, um, what is the word? Genius, Aficionado, maybe? expert. <laughs> Aficionado. Apparently uh, so. <laughs> so when you watch a film that is based on a play, what is it you're looking for? What do you, is there like a, because to me, what I like about them is essentially them being um, performance pieces for one yeah. and about how sort of the film's, are able to sort of adapt that stage play to then use how they use the camera, how they use all this to Ugh. make it feel like a film. Um, what about you? What do you what do you look for? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I think it, it depends on what it is because it's, a, it's, a, it's it's like anything when you're trying to turn it into something else. Yeah, um, they're two very different formats of a play and a film. But what often tends to happen is that because the text is so important to a play, um, a lot of film versions of plays can sometimes feel like a filmed version of that text. Yes, <laughs> um, very true. But And like you say, they're very performance-driven, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, so I, I guess it's interesting. Uh, I, but then you also have the, the other problem that sometimes people, when they're making a film adaptation of a play, think that they have to do too much because yes they think yeah. oh well people i don't want to just feel like we're standing watching watching people standing and talking so i've got to move the oh. camera here there and everywhere yeah. um but I, th I, th I think it is that in you're looking for that um that intensity of the performance because there's, there's, there's an intimacy to theater performance that you can get on film um yes. it's, it's just in a different way um so when I know we're not talking about musicals, but um, when Tom Hooper was doing the the Les Misérables 
um, yes, yeah. musical film. He wanted to film the the songs. Uh, he wanted to record the songs live, and also film in a lot of close ups, which right, is something yeah. that you can't get in theatre. You can't get close ups unless you're in a very small space. Um, so that's that's where you get. I guess it's kind of I I try to look for the things where they try to marry the best of both worlds because they are different. You can't look at them and say, oh well, that's that's trying to do the same thing as the play or it's trying to do the same thing as film you've got to look at the best of both worlds and try and make something new out of it i guess very Uh, true going off that then what sort of we've obviously picked three films that we are going to talk about a bit later on in discussion and we will focus a bit on shakespeare let's be honest his uh, (laughs) his work is everywhere but uh in terms of What's the most standout? So to you, what's the sort of iconic? Because to me, something like A Streetcar in Desire uh, is the first one I jumped to. Uh, to me, that's very much, it feels like uh, an adapted stage play. But in a way, yeah. that's kind of what I look for in these films. Yeah. You know, and it's just a phenomenal cast and Marlon Rampo is unbelievable in it. What about you? What do you kind of look for? What are the most famous ones that you think of? Uh, well, I, I have a soft spot for Rope. Um <laughs> Which, yeah. which does completely suffer from the thing I was just talking about of filming a play. <laughs> um, but but I just, I like the ambition of it. So so for anyone who doesn't, is not familiar with it, Rope was a Hitchcock film that was based on a Patrick Hamilton play, which was also loosely based on a real story um, of oh, right. two undergrads who decide that they want to murder somebody they know as a kind of philosophical exercise. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they basically decide we are we are the Nietzschean ideal. We're the Superman, um, and so we can kill somebody who we think is just a bit of a Joe Bloggs, um, and they they kill him and they stuff him in a trunk and then they host a dinner party which they serve food off of the top of that trunk. Um, yes, yeah. And the whole kind of setup of the play in the film is when are they going to find out there's a body in the trunk? Yes, um, yeah. So a classic kind of Hitchcock thriller style thing, but what he decided to do with it was film, film it as as much as possible in one take. Yeah. Um, obviously, he was filming on film, so the takes could only last about ten minutes. So there were various subtle and not so subtle cuts in the film, <laughs> where where he just zooms in on someone's back, and then all of a sudden yeah. it's uh, oh well, the take continues. Um, Roger Deakins would be very proud. Um, yeah, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I do have a soft spot for it because I think I, I like the idea of that, and it does still it kind of brings the audience into the stage world, um, which is a really nice way of adapting a play. I think. Yeah, I think I, I do. I always think that Rope is almost sort of one of Hitchcock's most underrated films. I think. I mean, because uh, maybe because he's so. Like revered in the films that people talk about um are obviously great the classics you know psycho and whatnot rear window but i think rope's really underrated um yeah i know phil you're a fan of rope as well right yeah yeah i am but interesting i uh, ropes no, uh, and uh streetcar named are, are the ones that i jump to when i think of um yeah. stage adaptations i always jump to or at least think of 12 angry men because uh, yeah. it's such a um simple setup and it's one of those that it just does kind of feel like a, a filmed stage play um uh and it's it's the same thing as, as what Corey was saying about streetcar named desire it's just an incredible cast um and i i just i've always found it interesting how like that sort of thing is so good when you can make tension 
and excitement out of just conversation that you're just yeah. having to people sat in a room talking but it's tense and it's exciting i think and then that's the same thing with you know when you're talking about actual theater that's when it's at its best as well when you're pulling tension from the um from the characters rather than you know sweeping camera shots uh, across wide battlefields or something like that um but yeah, yeah that, that's the one i usually jump to no yeah i mean 12 Men is oh, let's be honest it's one of the best films ever made There's no <laughs> doubt. i mean <laughs> i'm sure that's a whole different conversation but i think we can all agree it'd be up there um i think another one because i know we're talking about like a lot of these films that again feel like performance pieces it feels like almost like a film to play one i another one i really like cat on a hot tin roof and obviously it's a very famous play uh, elizabeth taylor and paul newman i mean you can't ask for like two better people um but the other one again elizabeth taylor who's afraid of virginia wolf that is oh, yeah that is one of the best in my opinion i think her and richard burton are just fantastic um it's not specifically like it's it's not these like sort of like big wide open spaces like it's letting them film a stage play but i think actually the camera kind of just sort of rests there and it allows these performances to come out just in oh. a few different locations and i mean that's very much like a stage play i think and i do think that's probably up there as one of the best as well yeah definitely. well who's afraid of virginia wolf is interesting because that was mike nichols film debut as a director and he started out as a yeah. theater director um, oh, right, and, okay. and he continued to direct theatre throughout his film career as well. Um, it was even directed a one-woman show with Whoopi Goldberg at one point for Broadway. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow! Um, okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it, but it's it, it's yeah, like you say, it's, it's very much an actor's um, an actor's uh, feast or a character-driven piece, as you were saying, Phil. Yeah, yeah. This, I mean, obviously, we're talking about these big performance pieces and. The, the sort of the next film this one's more intriguing because i mean i guess when i watched the film i wasn't actually aware that it was a stage play maybe that's just me not being that familiar with uh, the stage is amadeus because that doesn't yeah. to me feel like it's from a stage play no in a way i think it's just because it's got such grandeur and miller foreman directs the absolute shit out of it <laughs> um yeah, yeah. <laughs> i just uh, i had i had no idea when i first watched that and i think that's a really interesting one because to me that never felt like when you're watching streetcar named desire when you're watching who's afraid of virginia wolf it's very open it's very talky whereas uh amadeus feels more like a film epic more so than uh. it does like anything adapted from the theater so that's really interesting i would i mean jake maybe you've seen amadeus in theater i don't know is the stage play in what is, is there a difference between the two like is there a big difference in the way that like Foreman's made it. There's um, it's interesting because there's not a massive difference in terms of the text, as far as I remember. Yeah. It's um, they're both long. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yes. And they both have these sort of sweeping epics to them. Um, I guess the there's a, there's more kind of direct address of the audience in the stage version. Yeah. Um, so that in that inevitably feels more theatrical. Um, but um. Yeah, I think it's it. It is it is largely down to be large forming, like you said. He just, yeah, he yeah, directs yeah. the shit out of it. Um, yeah, that's a that's a very common phrase yeah. I think people like to use. I think it really is. <laughs> yeah, you got to direct the shit. Someone's to really yeah. yeah, you direct the shit out of it basically. Yeah, obviously, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, Miss that's that's something that tapped into what films and theatre differ in, which is that in theatre the idea is that the writer is is God. And um, yeah. in in film, the idea is that the director is God, and obviously neither of those things are technically true. Um, <laughs> yes, 
it's um but that's that's the kind of impression you get and you there's a lot of onus on the director in a film to do something with a play whereas a play can live or die by how good the text is in the theater yeah. so there's, yeah. so there's one last film that i wanted to mention which i mean literally just looking up as i understand it the director of the film is the guy who wrote the the, the stage play is doubt is that right yes <laughs> Yes, I don't think I've ever seen that before. Uh, I mean, maybe maybe it is pretty common, but like uh, a theatre writer director then coming to a film and then making his own story, uh, I had no idea to be honest. Yeah, it's it's not as common as you think it might be. Um, <laughs> no, but um, but yeah, he's one of those rare exceptions. I guess he kind of because jo- uh, John Patrick Shanley is the writer director of the film. He wrote the play. But he had already, by that point, had a long career as both a playwright and a screenwriter. Um, and he won, I think he won an Oscar for Moonstruck. Um, oh, right, yeah. Of all things. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, um, but obviously because he had that background and then because he won the Pulitzer for Doubt, um, he could kind of throw his weight behind it and say, well, no, I want to direct this. <laughs> yeah. What's your opinions so, on Doubt? Doubt is an interesting one because... Um, I feel like the film loses a bit of the ambiguity of the stage show, right. um, which is interesting because that seems to be the central point. <laughs> and, um, so the, the whole idea of doubt is 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 not a laughing matter at all. But is is this guy <laughs> abusing a child or not? Um, basically, is is the kind of center point of the whole story. Um, I feel like the film kind of falls one way or, or rather than the other. Um, whereas the stage show is very ambiguous, and it's not yeah. that the, the script is much different, um, because actually it's pretty much a straight copy and paste job. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, although there are some a little additional little extra things just to sort of flesh it out. Um, yeah, but you know, it's interesting. I think it's a solidly made film with some very good performances in it. Um, Am I Amy right in thinking that great. Viola Davis is in that for about ten minutes? She is. Yeah. For like one scene, and she's yeah. great. <laughs> she's she really good. Obviously, <laughs> she's, that's, that's the same David. as the stage show. Yeah, yeah. So the, oh, yeah, really? the stage show is the same thing. Uh, that uh, Mrs. Muller is the is the, the mother of the boy who is or isn't being abused. Um, comes on for one monster scene in the play, um, and then that's that. it. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny I was going to say that the film came second because that's such a Viola Davis thing to do is just to come in, do a really great performance and then piss off afterwards Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely yeah. Um, uh, Well, I think now is probably a good I feel like we can talk about Shakespeare forever so let's uh, <laughs> let's let's quickly get on it So let's start with films that are directly translated so we're talking about not films that have sort of taken the story of Shakespeare and adapted it to its own world a little bit Jake, what is your favourite Shakespeare story, more so than film at first? I <laughs> I really like, it's not necessarily his best play, I'll put that out there, but right. I really like a play called Titus Andronicus, which is just okay. absolutely batshit um, <laughs> and <laughs> quite cruel, um, but also quite funny. Um, and there has been a film version of it called Titus, directed by Julie Tamer, who did um, the stage version of The Lion King. Um, but, right. So, yeah, a bit of contrast. But yeah. um, no, Titus Andronicus is is just absolutely brutal. Um, 
and it's kind of like the collapse of Rome at the same time as this family drama is playing out between this old general who's come back from the war and a prisoner of war who he, he's basically killed her sons as part of this campaign so she manages yeah. to find her way into the royal family and then makes his life a living hell basically <laughs> oh um and obviously how is how is the film of that then is it is it a good it's, film it's, is it? it's pretty good actually it's quite it's interesting because um she, she clearly julie tamer's a really interesting director and she, she she's she's known for doing quite kind of avant-garde theater stuff but she's quite experimental in her film output as well yeah um so there's quite a lot of like weird artsy stuff in it um but there's but it's, but it is also defined by some very strong performances um and lots of blood and gore which um yeah who doesn't yeah. love a bit of blood and gore yeah, yeah, exactly more. exactly yeah um, i'm about to say yeah. it's an acquired taste but it sounds like it's <laughs> quite <laughs> much, <right? Yeah. laughs> uh what about you then phil we're talking about direct adaptations are we not um direct translations uh, yeah translations oh um i don't know i think for in like one that had me talking about it for a while afterwards the recent uh tragedy of macbeth that uh denzel washington did yes yeah that's um, really yeah. good yeah, that's very good i did think it was a bit difficult to get into by using sort of more shakespearean dialogue uh I was watching it with someone who wasn't familiar with the Macbeth story, so they found it quite difficult to get into. I've seen the Macbeth story quite a few times. I studied it at school and and everything, so I was very familiar. So that it it wasn't difficult for me. So visually, I could just in like enjoy what they what um the Coens were doing. Ah. Is it is it is it just one of the Coen brothers or is it both of them? Just Joel, I think. It's Joel, just Joel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I said that. Yeah. So it what Joel Co- Cohen is doing with this i think is really fascinating making this almost like surreal it to me i always found it of being like almost like a surreal painting in the background wow. just everything that's yeah. going on but it's so simplistic um i just i just thought it was really interesting way to adapt a shakespeare to make it feel although although you know you've got the shakespearean dialogue and the acting's very shakespearean as well but you've got these sort of like um settings and backdrops that are uh just feel very sort of heightened and unique. I thought it was a really interesting way of doing it. Well, it felt very Bergman, didn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I said that actually after watching. I think I think if you were to go back to it's interesting, sex. I think if you were to go back to our um uh our discussion of it because we discussed it when it came out. I think I said that as well that it was right. It's very yeah, Bergman esque. Yeah. yeah. Cinematography is wonderful in that film. Oh, it's absolutely unbelievable. I was gonna say, what about you, yeah. Corey? What's your well, the thing is, when I was at school, I think like most of us, I studied Romeo and Juliet. Uh, <laughs> that is, I I read that to death, and I can I just don't. I'm not. To be honest, I I like the Baz Luhrmann Romeo and Juliet. I think it's uh, good. I think it's really good. I did watch it to death at school. So yeah, <laughs> um, I'd probably say I've watched mostly a lot of Macbeth, um, but well, I'm a fan of the Hamlet story. Uh. Um, I well, in terms of direct translations to screen, I'm a, I do like. Uh, is it Justin Kurzel's Macbeth from 2015? Mm. Um, I'm a big fan of that. Um, weirdly, I don't know why, I always make a comparison. It's slightly like, uh, visually, it's a bit like Valhalla Rising. I don't know if you guys oh, have yeah. seen that oh, with yeah. Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah. Strange <laughs> comparison, but I always think the two are sort of kind of similar. 
Yeah. It's like a Valhalla Horizon meets Mad Max in a way. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I was a big fan of Tragedy of Macbeth. Um, yeah. In terms of, I, I do like the original Romeo and Juliet though from like 1967. I, I'm a fan of yeah. that. And like I said, I, the Romeo and Juliet story has been, like, I've read it to death, I've watched it to death. But if I had to pick one, I think uh, the original Romeo and Juliet from 1967 would be up there as one of my favourites. It's a classic. It is a classic. <laughs> you can't you can't deny it. Um, I, th- I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention some of the thespians of our time. Uh, <laughs> Kenneth, I know Kenneth Branagh um, has done a lot of Shakespeare. I, over the past few years, I've come to just appreciate Kenneth Branagh so much. Just the balls on the guy to make some of the stuff he does is just it's just amazing. <laughs> Um, and obviously, Laurence Olivier. So, Jake, are you a Brenner guy? Are you a Olivier guy? I'm not really massively fond of either of them, if i this. Oh, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. <laughs> Controversially. Um, I-, I can respect what they they did and their ambition. Um, and they what they both have uh, is a skill for knowing... Uh, they understand both cinema and theatre. So yeah, they're yeah. able to, to to jump between those two formats very well. Um, uh, have you ever seen the kind of Hamlet? No, that's the one of the only ones I've not watched just because it's four hours long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's tough. tough. That's, that's <laughs> tough. I haven't come around to it either. <laughs> no. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say you're missing out. To be honest, like it's perfectly good, but it's about four hours long. It needs to be. Is done. it? I mean, I don't know why. I just feel like isn't that a little self-indulgent to make a four-hour Hamlet film? Especially when you're playing Hamlet yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah especially when you're playing Hamlet. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's true. Uh, so, well, I mean, if you move on to the more interesting, I, I think it's more interesting side of Shakespeare adaptations, which is adaptations that have sort of been made into their own little world, I guess. Oh. Um, Phil, I noticed in the past few days you've been watching a bit of Kurosawa. He's obviously yes. a big Shakespeare fan. Yes. Uh, do you have a particular favourite? Throat of Blood. Sorry, yes. It's, yes. It's, I, I, right. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw the gauntlet down now. That, in my opinion, is the best Shakespeare adaptation, and I don't think I've seen a film which has blown me away as much as that. Am I right yeah. in thinking that Ran is King Lear as well? Yeah. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. I, maybe I would. Maybe just as a just if you do side by side film versus film, I, there might be a slight edge towards Ran for me. Do you think like Ran? I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not yeah. sure, but um, that's a, again. Could do an entire podcast on Kurosawa films. Let's be honest, but oh, uh, we I probably was... will one day. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we will. Uh, Jake, what about you? Are you a Kurosawa fan? Be crazy not to be, I guess. Uh, <laughs> <Throne of> <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like Throne of Blood as well, Phil. Um, I think you, you're right. It just absolutely gets the essence of Macbeth. Um, yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't faff about. It just gets it gets on and... it's brutal. And I think potentially one of the reasons maybe why I think that's my favourite and the best uh, Shakespeare adaptation is because of my affinity for Macbeth, just having it, it no. being the Shakespeare play that I had throughout school and then watching the most adaptations of for some reason. Um, but yeah, it is it is very, very, very Macbeth, but also <laughs> it's feudal Japan, um, yeah. which is yeah, an great. awesome setting. So, yeah. There was, there was so a brilliant... You... Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, you go, Jake. Go, Jake. Go. And there's a, I just, as a, there was a brilliant um, Japanese theatre production of Macbeth um, by the the Yuko Nagawa Company in the eighties that came back to the UK for the first time in like twenty years, about five years ago now. 
Um, and that is the best version of Macbeth I've ever seen on stage. It was really? absolutely brilliant. Wow. It was very similar in, in, in to Throne of Blood in terms of the kind of feudal uh, setting and the and you know samurai and all that kind of thing. But it was it was really really yeah just amazing, incredibly Japanese, but also incredibly <laughs> Shakespearean. <laughs> That's something that I, th- I think is really interesting about when Kurosawa does a Shakespeare adaptation is that oh. he manages to keep the Shakespeare in it, but it's yeah. also a quintessential Kurosawa film. Um, yes, yeah. I, th- yeah. I think no one, no one makes a film like Kurosawa unless they're trying to copy Kurosawa. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 The kind of the kind of quintessential Shakespeare, quintessential uh, Kurosawa, and it's like the best mix. You have to be, you can ask for anything <laughs> yeah. better than that, really. Yeah, um, uh, two very different. I mean, it's interesting because he, he does have quite a different style normally. I mean, you watch any of other uh, any of Kurosawa's other films, and he does have quite a different style to Shakespeare. I'm, it just comes from different backgrounds, don't they? That yeah. completely different times, completely different countries and cultures, but somehow he makes it work. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I guess it's just it is like it's like a um, it's almost like he creates like a fluid connection between his style and Shakespeare's. It's almost like game yeah. recognizing game. Like he knows he's good. <laughs> But yeah. you know he respects Shakespeare's text as well. Um, what about? Is there any others outside of Kurosawa? Then just like any other adaptations, we're we're big fans of. Ten Mind things King, I hate about maybe? you. Yes, both. <laughs> the Taming of the Shrew, obviously. I think. Yeah. Uh, I think. Do you know when I well, I found that out a little while ago? But I when I was doing research for this podcast, I reminded got reminded that Ten Things I Hate About You is a loose adaptation of uh, Taming the Shrew. Yeah, <laughs> what a film! What a film! What a film. But yeah, obviously, really... like, like, sorry, it's can't do it. No, uh, Tammy Gilder. Sorry, it's not Tammy Gilder. Ten things I hate about you does a really good job of handling Tammy Gilder Shrew as well, because Tammy Gilder Shrew is possibly the most problematic Shakespeare play that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> remains popular. Um, yeah. So yeah, it does. It does handle. It doesn't stumble into too much misogyny, which is great. Did <laughs> you yeah, too much? A bit. It's always <laughs> nice. No, it's yeah. always nice. <laughs> but yeah, so, obviously Lion sorry, King. Phil. Lion King is yeah. uh, uh, it's Lion King's Hamlet, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. feel like that's the big uh, one, isn't it? That's the one that everyone <laughs> sort. Of, I feel like I feel like before people actually recognised that it was a Hamlet story, I used to for some reason when I was at school, people used to be like, "That's actually Shakespeare," you know? And it's like, really? <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> Mind boggled. Um, <laughs> I d- I just just before I was gonna, before we jump to anything else, have you heard of people claiming the Warm Bodies, that zombie film from like uh, two thousand thirteen? Yeah, yes. is an adaptation. Yeah. I I I'm not sure I agree with that. I was just trying to that, be, there's people making a comparison between that and Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, which I I'm guess, not sure I buy it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty tenuous. Um, yeah. It's the one with Nicholas Holt in it, is it? Yeah, well, where the zombies like are like right. sentient and. It's like a zombie love story. Have you not? It's okay. When it came out, it didn't appeal to me really. (laughs) No, it's not Romeo and Juliet. I just, I just thought it was funny that uh, just in case anyone's out there, be like, well, actually, Warm Bodies is Shakespeare. No, it's not. (laughs) It's not. There's some Warm Bodies super fans out there that will disagree with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Let us know in the comments how wrong I am. (laughs) There's one takeaway from the podcast. It's just a bunch of Warm Bodies fans. Yeah. Getting very angry at us. Yeah, our entire audience is actually like warm body stands. What the? And they're just begging us this whole time. Please talk about warm bodies. So, what about you, Jake? Is there any other adaptations that you're a fan of? 
Oh. Um, I, th- I think we've kind of covered all the big hitters, really. Um, yeah, warm bodies, obviously, that's covered to them. Obviously, obviously, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's <laughs> yeah, the yeah, big yeah. hitters. That's the, it's, the only, it's the only reason I came onto the podcast, really, to talk about warm bodies. So. <laughs> oh, dear, um, dear. Yeah, there's yeah, obviously West Side Story, I suppose, as well, because that's an adaptation yeah. of Romeo and Juliet. That's an actual yes. adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, isn't it? Um, yeah, which yeah. I suppose we've had Spielberg's recent uh, West Side Story. Um, yeah, I know. Well, I, look, I know, I know it's a musical, and that's like out of this realm. But Jake, out of curiosity, what did you think of Spielberg's West Side Story? I still haven't seen it, if I'm honest. Oh. Um, so <laughs> sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, disappointing. I feel like I need to hear more. I feel like. Around the time it came out, and then I, ne- I needed to hear more opinions of it because yeah. I, I was I thought it was a bit. Meh. What's the point? Yeah. Like it just it didn't do anything different, really. Yeah. Spielberg's <laughs> obviously a great director, but what's the point? <laughs> no, just watch the original one; it's so much better. Well, yeah, the West Side Story is an interesting one because they had for for, for years, um, any stage production of it was contractually obliged to use the original choreography from the original Broadway performance. Um, so any revival had to stick to jerome robbins choreography um and i think it was there was a there was a sudden rush of um productions of west side story just before lockdown and so there was there was one at curve in leicester funnily enough but there was also one uh at the royal exchange in manchester um and they were suddenly able to use their own choreography and um (laughs) there was also one that I think was going to get mounted on Broadway. I can't remember if it actually happened or not, or whether the pandemic got in the way. Um, but um, but that was also going to have its own choreography, which well, was well, the first why time. Why is it so? Why now does it allowed? Is it allowed its own? Choreography, I think it's then? because it was a certain number of years since the death of Jerome Robbins. <laughs> right? Is, um, it, is it like that thing with like the public domain thing? Like, isn't it? Like uh, yeah, I, you, I guess so. I, public domain. I mean, he he had good Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, Sherlock Holmes is now in the public domain. So. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. S- similar like know, that. Yeah, yeah. West Side Story's choreography. Now, completely off topic. I know this is, but that Winnie the Pooh was given public domain, and then they made, literally instantly made a Winnie the Pooh horror film where Winnie and Piglet chased down people and killed them. No, <laughs> <laughs> I love people's imaginations. It's great. Why don't we get on to the three movies we? Uh, kind of all suggested to each other, or we wanted to rewatch for this. Phil, why don't we start with yours? Um, yes. Introduce it. Tell us about it. What was it? No, no, you've got to guess. <laughs> no, <laughs> <not> guess. <laughs> um, I chose uh, 2016's Fences, which sounds like I just love Denzel Washington because I was talking about like Beth earlier, uh, which I do. I do. I do love Denzel Washington, Who but um, obviously. But I, I think for me. I mean, there's a re. I love 2016 as year. Me and Corey have of, often talked about 2016 just being a pretty astonishing year in film. Yeah, La La Land, Manchester by the Sea, Moonlight, uh, Moonlight. Yeah, there's <laughs> Moonlight, so many, course, yeah. so many things in that year that are incredible. But it was one of those where, um, uh, up until that point, I feel like any time I'd seen a state adaptation. Oh, sorry, a film adaptation of a stage play. I'd never really appreciated it for what it was worth. And there was something about Fences that just resonated with me. It's just, yeah, it, it, like, like 12 Angry Men, it's very, very simply shot. It's just a few different rooms, mostly in one house or in the garden. Um, and 
it's mostly just about their sort of three performances and how they interact with each other and um you know it's like Corey was saying when we spoke about it a little while ago you were saying about how the whole film you just want the son to punch his dad in the face the whole time yes yeah, like so much. really re- but you never get that and i feel like this film has a re- it has a really really um a great way of being restrained about everything it does until Viola Davis just explodes. And I mean, I know the film is essentially just this, like, it, it is basically the great because of this one scene between Viola Davis and Denzel Washington, but it's probably two of the best performances either of them have ever had, uh, considering yeah. their careers. That I do think that's saying quite a lot. And I don't know, there's just something about taking uh, mundanity and normality and sort of thinking you're going to have bigger things for your life and it never turning into that and and just having to accept that your whole life because of one man it's his fault and then he just becomes a miserable bastard i just there's just something in that that i just think is so interesting and i think it it explores that in such an interesting way too um yeah there's just something about fences that just really really resonated me when i when i watched it that's a good pick had you seen it? Did you see it when it first came out, Jake? Or had you had to? Did you have to watch it when we did this? Uh, no, I, I I saw it in the cinema when it came out. Um, yeah, I thought it was great. I was just going to say because, like, as I understand it, right, uh, that um, Denzel, a lot of the cast were from uh, the Broadway. Because uh, no, they, they redid the the Broadway play, didn't they? Because in the eighties, it was James Earl Jones and stuff. I think yeah. I heard that at the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is really interesting. I think you can actually feel that sort of like connectivity between the cast. I think they're all really good. And I, I guess I maybe I'd forgot a little bit. So because I did rewatch it for the purpose of this podcast, I think I must have forgot a little bit how like interesting the story is. Uh, Denzel's character's story really is about sort of he, he's almost like he's so bitter and he feels like he's owed. Like he does his responsibility and he expects to be treated like, you know, the leader of the house. And then obviously part of the way through then when he when it finds out he's had an affair he's then lost all that thing because his whole thing was about um he may not do what he likes but he's loyal and he you know he he provides and then he does this thing and then the whole like whole energy of the relationships change and i think that's really uh, there's something I, i guess i didn't really take into account when i first watched it but i think it's a big thing that i saw i thought it was really impressive when i watched it again uh you are right though phil all i wanted was for his son to absolutely twat him (laughs) <laughs> but um and it's, it's it's really unsatisfying that he doesn't but i guess um i, I it's just it is just scene after scene of really powerful performing uh right. is it is am i right is it august wilson the, uh, yeah yeah the writer yeah 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 it's really good um i i think maybe i don't high have it as in high regard as maybe like the numerous other films from that year it's a tough year in it um, yeah. but no I'm glad, I'm glad I rewatched it though because there were certain things I took away from it that I didn't before and it's nice to see that I think so Jake your film tell us about yeah, so, it <laughs> so I, I I picked a slightly odd one um, <laughs> so it's it's from 1986 yeah it's um it's, it's an adaptation of a play called Children of a Lesser God um, and I, I, part of the reason why I picked it was because I thought it'd be a good comparison with last year's Best Picture winner at the Oscars, which was Coda. Um, yes. Which is about a, a, a young girl with um, deaf parents living in the deaf community and, and sort of trying to find her way within that as a, as a person who is able to hear. Um, 
and it's also the second time in Oscar history that a a, a deaf um, cast cast member had actually won an Oscar. Um, yeah. Whereas Children of the Lesser God was the first time that a, a deaf or hearing impaired actor won uh, an Oscar, um, and that's Marley Matlin for her lead performance in in the play. Um, and it's an interesting one because it was a essentially the play is about a uh, a teacher who who works in a deaf school. Um, who wants to, um, you know, he's one of those cool, funky teachers that you get in the 80s who's very liberal that <laughs> wants to get, get the kids dancing around doing exciting things and all this kind of thing. But um, he, he, find, he meets this woman who works in the school. She was a student at the school as a child, um, and she's been completely deaf since birth. Um, and she, uh, she now works as the janitor, and she refuses to speak. Um, uh, so she she only communicates using ASL, which is American Sign Language. Uh, and basically, the whole play is a kind of tussle between the two of them, uh, where she's trying to keep her individuality and her identity, but also, um, there's a romantic interest in him, and he is. It's a it's a quite controlling relationship. I would say. It is, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, which is obviously very problematic, and I think the, both the play and the film, I think the film does a better job of, of addressing that, but but neither of them are particularly successful. Um, so I'm not necessarily endorsing this film as like an amazing, an amazing thing. Um, I just think it is very interesting, particularly when people think about theatre and, and adaptations of plays as being this very um, verbal, text-driven thing. Um, and at the moment, there's a lot of, uh, in the theatre world, there's a lot of people trying to incorporate elements of um, sign language into performance. So it's not just uh, an interpreter at the edge of the stage translating it for hearing impaired audience members. It's actually trying to make uh, um, characters using BSL parts of drama. Um, and uh, the, you know, some great theatre companies doing this at the minute, like uh, 1623 and Definitely Theatre and, um, and Grey Eye. Um, but there's a there was a production of um, Much Ado About Nothing. Was it Much Ado About Nothing? No, As You Like It. Sorry, um, in London just before Christmas, where one of the actors in it was uh, Rose Ailing Ellis, um, who was uh, strictly come down the same winner, um, <laughs> um, and is deaf, and and her, so she was performing in BSL. And an audience member um, started having a bit of a rant and interrupted the performance and said, uh, this is discriminatory towards hearing people. Um, so, which is obviously a wonderful example of privilege. Um, but it's, it's just this interesting time when we're starting to, to get um, BSL integrated into performances. Um, and even, even when this film, When Children of a Lesser God came out, um, Roger Ebert wrote, a positive review of it. It was generally positively received, and Marley Matlin's performance is incredible, and she went on to win win the Oscar for it. Um, but um, even at the time, Roger Ebert pointed out in his performance, in, sorry, his review, that the film is kind of um, it's geared towards a hearing audience. Um, so whenever she is signing in the film, um, he uh, the William Hurt character. Um, speaks back what she is saying, um, presumably to himself, but obviously for the benefit of the audience. 
um, yeah. instead of using subtitles, for instance, um, which might just be a good thing to have generally in the film, especially if you're trying to make a film about deaf people and you want deaf people to see it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so, so there are, even at the time, there were things where people were recognizing problems with it. But I think it's, it's interesting to look at it particularly as something that incorporates um, a less, uh, I guess, traditional uh, text-based um, storytelling. Um, so, yeah, that's why I picked that one. <laughs> it's interesting that you compare it to sort of Coda last year, because that was a comparison I made. Because obviously, a, like a few years ago, we had Sound of Metal as well. Yeah, um, yeah, I was going to say that. that was, yeah. That's obviously more about someone making that transition and how you deal with that. But I actually found it's it's with Coda and Children of a Lesser God, it's more about how uh, people of uh, who people who are deaf and people who are, oh, obviously aren't deaf, how their relationships connect and how there is like um, things that come between them that you know, like uh, the girl from Coda and her family, and then obviously in this William Hurt. And uh, Molly Matlin's character. Molly Matlin is fantastic in this. She's so yeah, good. Um, I did. Yeah. I did know about this film because just purely because I knew she'd won the Oscar for it. Yeah. Um, I do think it is. You're right. I do think it is kind of it's it. It's kind of through William Hurt's character, though, isn't it? The whole film, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, I kind of when you first see him doing the um, like saying the the signs back to himself. You're like, oh, maybe he's just doing it because he's because he does say at the start that maybe like his signing isn't amazing. Yeah. Um. And I was like, oh, he must be. And then later on, you're like, I feel like I would have the same effect if he just if there was just like subtitles. Like that would yeah. be so much better for me. Like I do feel like. And you're right, it's a bit of a dodgy relationship. The one issue I had <laughs> with the film, well, another issue I had with the film, I would say, is that maybe it's because maybe it's just the the text it comes from, or because it's like a. 80s romance is there yeah. in the end i kind of just didn't want them to be together i lo- yeah. I think the, the last moments of the film when he says can we find a place not in the silence not in the sound but somewhere in between i think that's really nice but she the whole point of that last bit is that she's trying to find her own um yeah like, identity and yeah. then she comes back uh, I, d- I don't know if i agree with that fully i really i do really like the film though i think marley matlin's fantastic it she's so good in it and well. I do like William Hurt, but yeah, he seems like quite a controlling character. <laughs> yeah, I, and quite horribly, um, that then sort of played out in real life as well. Marley Matlin yes, and William yeah. Hurt ended up having quite a long, abusive relationship. Um, yeah, but oh, I didn't know uh, yeah, I, I mean, I agree that the script has an awful lot of problems, um, <laughs> and it's, it's interesting because the stage script is very different to the. To the film right. script, it, it in some ways I think it's a very successful transition because it makes it more filmic. the The pace of the film is much more like a, a pace of a, of a of how a film works as opposed to a play that's become a film. Um, and, and there aren't many extended scenes, um, even though there are limited locations. It kind of moves along swiftly. It could, if you didn't know, you could look at that and think it wasn't based on a play. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But it loses a lot of this. There's a whole uh, subplot in the play where um, the form, there's there's a very small character in the film who is is deaf and teaches at the school now and was a student yes, uh, yeah. originally called Orin, and he has an entire story arc in this in the play where he tries to sue the school because they're not hiring enough um, 
deaf or hearing impaired teachers. Oh, um, right. And and this hotshot lawyer comes in and has this whole sort of court case going on in the background. And and again, there's this kind of idea that um, a hearing person is trying to control the narrative of the deaf community, um, even in a very well-intentioned way. Um, but but that, they com they completely cut that out of the film, which I get for you know streamlining it in time and things like that. But it is a bit of a shame. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but there's also this idea with the stage version that it's all happening inside the William Hurt character's head, like this is all his memory of the of the relationship and whatnot, which might make sense as to why they get together at the end. Because like you say, it doesn't make sense at all. They shouldn't end up together. He's a no, twat. they shouldn't. Yes, yes, he is. <laughs> Uh, so I so I guess but uh, but yeah it's it's it, yeah it's a problematic film definitely <laughs> that scene uh, that scene where they have like that big argument well I I there is no way any audience member could root for William Hurt's character in that when he no, literally really. says to her like you need to speak my language yeah it's like <laughs> now this guy's an arsehole <laughs> yeah 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 absolutely. <laughs> No, it was, it was interesting. Though. I I haven't actually maybe I'd heard of it when Coda had come out and they had talked, well, spoken about how there hadn't been a um, uh, someone who'd won an Oscar, an acting Oscar, uh, with any sort of hearing impairment since this film. But um, I I wasn't familiar with it. And it's interesting what you say, Jake, about how it doesn't feel like it's an adaptation of a play. It does huh. just feel. I, if I didn't know, if we hadn't done it for this and I just watched it, I wouldn't have known that it was. Uh, a play adaptation it does feel very filmic if if we aren't going to talk about uh, all the issues that you guys i mean there's no point in me just regurgitating the same issues <laughs> that you guys were saying i think i think uh in so for me for me there's part of it like we probably wouldn't have films like coda and sound of metal without this i feel like yeah. you need something like this to to get to those sorts of films oh. but there are still points where I feel like there's aspects in which um, you can see the sign language really clearly. Like there's oh. bits when they're in bed and it's just a two shot of them and he's signing onto her body. And I oh. thought, that's that's nice. It's oh. integrating where we can see everything very clearly. But then sometimes it just does like really close-ups and you can't see the sign language. Like yeah. it's just a close-up of their yeah. face and you can kind of see their hands sort of poking out. And it's just kind of like... You you miss the mark slightly there because it's like you nearly had it, it and then you didn't. But you nearly put. I mean, yeah. it's still an interesting film. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame actually what you're saying about that that missing subplot because I think that really could have added something. But yeah, uh, I think so. I mean, yeah. at, at its heart, this film is a romance, isn't it? Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah. I I I just have to agree. I don't think they should have got together in the end either. But you know, no. I think cinema when... must be cinema, especially eighty cinema. Well, <laughs> yeah, it was like it's not like when you get to the end and, and you're like, right, what do I know about this film? I know it's an '80s and I know it's a romance. Are they going to get back together? Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that, is, that is the takeaway. Yeah, <laughs> all the other '80s uh, '80s rom romances I've watched <laughs> tell me yeah. that they're going to get back together. <laughs> but, yeah, um, absolutely. No, I did like the film. I think Marley Matlin was the takeaway though. Um, oh, absolutely, absolutely. She's, yeah. she's incredible. She's, she's incredible. astonishing. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. what's interesting is that um, this, it's, it's not based on a play. But there was a Ukrainian film made in 2014, I think, called The Tribe, um, mm. which is entirely 
in Ukrainian sign language. There aren't subtitles. There are no. There's no spoken dialogue. It's all oh. entirely performed in Ukrainian um, sign language, and it's set in this, uh, essentially, this um, borstal for hearing impaired um, juvenile delinquents. Essentially, um, <laughs> oh, it's, right. a, it's a very, it's a very rough film. Um, it's brilliant. It is really, really good. Um, but it is, it's, it's absolutely harrowing. Um, but what it does do is just how it goes into this community and it has the community just being themselves. There is absolutely no point when um, a hearing person speaks um, or any of any of the uh, hearing impaired people speak. It's all just in, in Ukrainian sign language. And obviously, I neither speak Ukrainian nor sign language. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> But you get you get everything you get everything you need. Uh, you can still follow the narrative. You still get the emotion, um, and it it works. It absolutely hangs together. So it's like you said, Marley Matlin is the absolute star of Children of Lesser God. Um, yeah, and it's just such a shame that they didn't trust her and also deaf performers more. Um, yeah. So I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know uh, this year, well, last year, sorry, that we talked about uh, the Oscars. When Troy Kotzer won his, there was a really nice moment when the camera goes to Marley Matlin and then she's her and Troy Kotzer are in that like uh, like recognition thing because obviously just those two being the only two uh, deaf Oscar winners is a really nice moment. But, but um, yeah, um, yeah, I think uh, it's a good, I enjoyed the film. Marley Matlin's great, but it isn't without its problems. Um, no, absolutely. <laughs> no. So uh, I talk about the one I I think. Um, pretty famous in terms of when you think of like film adaptations plays and stuff glenn gary glenn ross um Myself. all-star cast um yeah uh directed by james foley it's from 1992 um it's about um a group of salesmen in the space of what like an evening and a morning uh and how sort of just evil salesman really can't be um uh I, I when i watched it again i kind of thought in a strange strange way it's like a spiritual uh spiritual um cousin to something like american psycho that is the extreme version and the more like uh imaginative version of just saying how the rich and famous are just evil or someone in that like realm but the the characters are kind of are all a bit patrick bateman <laughs> um <laughs> They're all a bit just horrible human beings, but um, no, I think the, so. I picked this one because when I was first like watching movies when I was like fifteen, um, for some reason this was one of the first ones that really caught me and stuck with me. Um, and obviously, it's been a long time since I'd actually watched it. And I thought, and and, that, and in my head, a lot of the time, I big up films and then I rewatch them. And I'm like, actually, maybe not. But this one again, I rewatched it. I thought it was just as good as when I watched it. Um, this is everything that like a film adapted from a play should be to me like uh just the the performances in this are so good i mean who have you got you've got al pacino jack lemon um kevin spacey but you know we don't we skip past that one um <laughs> uh, yeah I mean, Alan Arkin, <laughs> yeah. ed harris um and alec Baldwin. i mean they're all so good and um I think it's a really interesting story and just how horrible these people are. Um, a particular scene that affects me is uh, Jonathan Price, 
obviously plays a character who um, is trying to make Al Pacino is trying to make that deal happen. And then there's a moment when it all kind of falls apart. And Jonathan Pierce like storms out and he's like, I'm sorry, I need to go, blah, blah. And Al Pacino's kind of looking like he fit at first. There's a look to think Al Pacino knows he's done this guy wrong. And then he, he turns around and goes, you just cost me $6,000, you cunt. <laughs> yeah. And it, I was like, oh, wow. There's just absolutely nothing redeeming about any of them. But it is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is um, written by David Mamet, isn't it? Who wrote the yeah. play that it's based off of. Who, who's quite well known for adaptations because i think the the one that I, I i don't think i'd seen this before i saw the verdict i think i saw the verdict first oh yeah that's uh, a great which is obviously a fantastic film too but something i think mamet does with this that um i think i read a review somewhere once saying about how you can tell the actors are having so much fun in eating up the words that mamet's given them and i mean the dialogue mm -hmm. in this is just it, it's always been mamet's sort of um best quality as a screenwriter or um just any form of writing is his dialogue is just like oh god you just went you, it's just like you, they, they could just eat it up it's just everything it's just it like from the great one-liners to long monologues i think yeah it's um yeah a shining example of that for Mehmet. wow yeah it's pretty like you say just such Good performances in it. I think Jack Lemon is absolutely incredible in that film. Yes, and it, it's interesting watching it. Um, watching it this time, um, I don't think I because I think when I first saw it, I was just kind of blown away by it, and then mm. watching it this time, it's really interesting looking at the different performance styles because um, Al Pacino um, is is both has a very long career in both stage and film um and his performance and it feels it's really good but it feels more like a stage performance whereas yeah. um people like jack lemon and um alan arkin and ed harris feel more like film performances within yeah yeah the, uh, which is which is interesting because obviously it is it is a stage text really um and I don't think there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that was taken out of the. And in fact, they added stuff in because the Alec Baldwin character is not in the stage show. Um, Obviously not. <laughs> no, that was that was entirely written just for the play. Uh, sorry, just for the film. Because uh, at one point he was going to play Ricky Roma in the in the film version because uh, Al Pacino right. had to drop out. Um, but then the filming got delayed, and they were like, "Well, we'd rather have Al Pacino play Ricky Roma." But we really like you, Alec Baldwin. Um, <laughs> so they wrote him that they wrote him that part to make up for it. Um, oh, that's, amazing! That's kind that's of great. another classic example of sort of just uh, scene stealing. So, I mean, it, oh, I would yeah. say scene scene stealing because I mean it's just that one scene. But he is so good in that one scene. Yeah. Um, I, I get what you mean though with Al Pacino's feeling more like a stage performance because he's very like he's got a lot of vibrato. It all comes from the chest, like what he's saying. Wow. Uh, whereas Alan Arkin and Jack Lemon is so good at this, I think. Um, yeah, those two in particular very much feel like uh, screen presences more so than stage. Um, yeah, for, for some reason, when because um, this isn't a very long movie. I mean, it's what ninety minutes, um, hundred ten minutes ish. Um, hundred hundred minutes, I think. Yeah, hundred minutes is it right? Um, and I always thought Ed Harris. I know Ed Harris like that. He that he is a constant in the film. 
I, I always thought he was in it more. I know that seems odd because he is in it a lot. But I, I always thought that like there's a big portion of that like final scene which takes about twenty minutes, half an hour, because it is literally just things happening in that one place where he is at the start of it and then leaves. And then you don't see it. Like I just assumed he was in more. I mean, he is great. And then like it's mostly like Al Pacino, Jack Lemon, and stuff like bouncing off each other for the last like twenty minutes. But I always thought Ed Harris had like a really I know he has a crucial part in the script, but I always thought he was like one of the head honchos in the film, but he's actually not. It was interesting um, <laughs> on the rewatch. Yeah. So I've obviously it's been a while since I've watched this film, but I'm glad I rewatched it because there's nothing particularly showy to be like this, you know, is a really good like uh, uh, exercise in filmmaking. But in terms well, of what we're talking about, like adapted from uh, a script, this is exactly what I look for when I look for something like that. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's fantastic. And it, you can't ask for a better cast, really. Well, no, definitely not. And this is, it's funny you were saying about how Pacino um, feels more like a stage performance as the Pacino's become known for his overacting performances his Pacino-ness and I think (laughs) I've always wondered if when he's doing that and trying to do a good job of it I've always wondered if what he's going for is a more stage-like performance and he's just just doesn't know how to do it as well anymore or anything like that (laughs) because sometimes he could just be very uh Pacino-y and yeah uh, but if you think you know Pacino in like Dog Day Afternoon or Serpico. Yeah, yeah. Like, at, or, God, or The Godfather. You're like, that's a proper yeah. film performance. It's fantastic. And then yeah. you, you see him in Heat and. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. Irishman. My God. I, I don't get me wrong. I love him, but. <laughs> I, I feel like uh, 70s, 80s, and even 90s, Al Pacino, probably arguably my favorite actor. Once you wow. get into the 21st century, it starts to slip a little bit. There is, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, hey, I, I loved him in Jack and Jill. What can you say? But you know, <laughs> but no, I, I, I still love him. But it, it does start to slip a little bit. But in Glengarry and Ross, it is. It all just feels like it's coming from the chest. Like you just went wow. from ooh ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, yeah. yeah. Whereas everyone, Jack Lemon is so uh, he's it's that he's obviously spent uh, quite a fair amount of his career playing this absolutely lovable charismatic well, guy and to flip that and use that charisma as like a skeevy little salesman i think is brilliant yeah um no he, he is fantastic it is it, it really is a performance piece um yeah every single person in that even alan arkin's fantastic uh wow even though he might not be the um he kind of falls into the background a little bit in terms of where the story's going but he is fantastic as well he's arguably one of the best supporting actors of the past you know 30 40 years but right. um couldn't ask for a better cast and i still maintain this probably stands as one of my favorite films still is there anything else any other films you wanted to mention before we um we close up we wrap up i i, I get a <laughs> get a slightly i get the i was going to talk about train spotting actually okay because because train spotting um obviously was a novel first so I yes. know we're slightly breaking the rules here. <laughs> hey, it's all right. It's okay. <laughs> we'll allow it. But, <laughs> but the reason I wanted to talk about it was because I think one of the things when we're thinking about um, like adaptations of stage shows is because there's an idea of what theatre is um, and, there's, and there's an idea of what film is. And I don't think that either of those are technically true because there are so many different types of film. Um 
and there are so many different types of theatre. So yeah, yeah, Train Spotting is is a fantastic film and it's really dynamic um, and has loads of like just bizarre stuff happening and the camera goes everywhere. And <laughs> but it is also very performance driven and very much the, the text. Um, but it was it was a novel, then it was a stage show. And then it was a film. And the stage show was... uh, In the 1990s, there was a style of theatre called in-your-face theatre that was very um, in-your-face. And and, um, (laughs) the idea of it was that it was all very... um, It it was kind of like a resurgence of like the angry young man type idea from the 50s. It was like, we're going to show you people that you don't normally see we're going to show you worlds you don't normally see. Um, it's going to be grimy. It's going to be nasty. It's going to be in your face. We're going to swear. There's going to be sex. There's going to be violence. Um, get ready. Um, and so the stage production, and it has been sort of revived various times since, is done what is what, what they call promenade performance, which is when the audience are actually the actors are am- are among the audience so it's not yeah. like a traditional you come in you take a seat you're looking at a stage um it it could be anywhere i think they've done they've done a staging of this train spotting in a in an old warehouse um and the 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 actors are walking around the audience are walking around they're going from scene to scene they'll take you from one place to another and it's very uh, visceral very um yeah it's it's it's, it's a bit different um, yeah. So, so, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there are, although Train Spotting the film is is very much a film and is is a direct take from the from the novel, um, rather than the stage show, it does share some elements with that particular staging of the story, um, and there are very different styles of theatre out there. It's not all just um, you know uh, people standing around talking for two hours in one room in front of an audience of. 250 people sat in seats you know um so it's just i don't know i just thought i'd mention it as a kind of interesting person point that's super interesting (laughs) i I can't i can't imagine there being like a really like that kind of train spotting thing where they do the worst toilet in scotland scene yeah where (laughs) you're just just watching very close up an active climb into a toilet or something (laughs) um but that's really interesting i think well to be fair you're right like there are so many modes and stuff when you get when you get into it and like we did this because we have to you have to kind of stick to those guidelines because otherwise you oh, can go oh, down yeah. on tangents i mean look how long yeah. we spent talking about warm bodies um yeah yeah that was the fans you know we had to um but yeah uh i think hopefully in the future we'll definitely do a musical one i think that is uh that's and it'll be happen. long, long land for four and it'll a half long hours, <laughs> Jay. Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, no, we'll definitely do a uh, musical one, and Jake would we'll, love to have you back. Um, oh, thank unless, you. No, you know, to be fair, thank unless you. the fa- if the fans speak and you know they don't want you back, what can we do? You know, <laughs> well, who, who can blame them? <laughs> our, our comments are all going to be Jake and warm bodies now, aren't they? So. <laughs> Um, Jake, if uh, anyone wants to reach you on anything, uh, any of the Twitters, any of the Facebooks, uh, where can they find you? <laughs> um, uh, I'm just 
Jake Leonard on Facebook. Um, on Twitter, I am at Jake Leonard nineteen ninety two. Um, I, thought, I, I, I was hoping page. then that you were going to stop and just say, "I'm just Jake Leonard." <laughs> I'm just a, I'm just an idea, Jake Leonard. Yeah, I'm a concept of a person. So. <laughs> yeah. um, but no, thank you very much for coming on. It has been a no, pleasure. Thank you. Um, if you like, you know, everyone else, if they want to shout at me and Phil, you can find us on our personals. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Cospjord. I'm at Philson Wilson. Uh, you can find uh, Real on all the socials at Real Reviewing. Uh, and you can listen to this podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts, I guess. Um, <laughs> if you go to realreviewing.com, you can find a few of our articles and lists. But uh, in the meantime, thank you for listening. <laughs>